This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg We're in the middle of letter number 26, page 137 and he explained the Zohar, and the Zohar was explaining the difference between the tree of knowledge and the tree of life, that the revealed part of the Torah, he refers to as the, which discusses kosher, not kosher, permitted, not permitted, you know, all the laws in the Torah. He refers to the Talmud, the mission refers to as the tree of knowledge versus the Zohar and the secrets, the mysticism, mystical part of the Torah refers to the tree of life. And the question was, how can you call any part of the Torah the tree of knowledge, which is a mixture of good and evil? Every word, every letter in the Torah is divine, it's pure. It's And many other questions, and he explained that, of course, the Zohar is not referring to the Torah itself. The Torah is life, the tree of life. Every word, every letter is divine, it's godly. He's referring to the object which the Torah deals with. The revealed Torah, which deals with kosher, not kosher, we're dealing with a physical object, and the Torah is, is telling us this object is kosher, it's not kosher. So the object that we're dealing with derives from the tree of knowledge, which is a mixture of good and evil. Because everything in the physical world is a mixture. Ever since the sin of, of the tree, ever since, as a result of that sin, everything in this world became mixed up and confused. And, and, um, and that's why we have the Torah to help us clarify and to sift through and to clarify and to separate what's good, what's not good. Because everything is confused. It's not clear. Nothing is clear. Nothing is simple. Nothing is clear cut. So you need a Torah to tell us there are things that look good but are really not good. There are things that don't look good but are really are good. So it's, it goes beyond the superficial. You know, the, you can look at the world and see things very superficially. With, you can look at the world without the Torah and it's very confusing. Something may appear to be good Many ideologies that sounded wonderful. Sounds wonderful on paper. But in real life, it's poison. It's toxic. It's a disaster. You have ideas that sound wonderful. But in reality, what's beneath it and what's behind it and you know what's hidden and what's you don't always see, it's not always self evident, it's not always obvious. Many ideologies that sounded good on paper, but when they were implemented they were a disaster, a tragedy. So the Torah helps us clarify. The Torah gives us the proper lenses 
to be able to look at things properly. The Torah tells us this object kosher. This object is not kosher. This idea is kosher. This idea is not kosher. Guilty, not guilty. Obligated, not obligated. Pure, impure. So we're not talking about the Torah. The Torah is divine. The Torah is godly. The Torah gives us clarity. On the contrary, in order for the Torah to be able to illuminate darkness, to be able to to deal with this chaotic, vague, nebulous, confusing reality, and to be able to give clarity, decisive clarity, and say, kosher, not kosher, this is, on the contrary, this is tremendous light. This is only divine. Only the divine ability to be able to call everything 100% of the time, 100% accurate. Human beings, we don't have that, that ability. We get taken in, we get conned, we get taken in, we get fooled. We see partially, we see something. But to be able to, be, to, be able to separate and to sift through and to clarify and to differentiate from the inside and the outside and what's good and what's not good and what's kosher and what's not kosher what works, what doesn't work what sounds good but it's really it's really uh, it's a poison because again, you know, sweetness something that's sweet could be poisonous too much sugar and it'll kill you you know, they didn't have all the illnesses we have today 200 years ago they had other problems there was no hygiene and people died. They didn't know about germs. But they didn't have the illnesses that we had. You know, you go back to primitive people, they don't have the illnesses that modern man has. They never had all these illnesses, cancers and heart diseases, diabetes, never had any of it. You know why? <laughs> they had no sugar. <laughs> 200 years ago, the average person had a four gram of sugar a day. That was a lot. Today, one drink of uh, certain sodas is 37 grams of sugar. One bottle. Seven up, I think, is like 37 grams of sugar. So, you know, we're, we're eating all this garbage. It's no wonder why man is so sick. You know, so it's sugar is sweet, it's good. Yeah, but too much of a good thing will also kill you. So there are things, ideas, are things that sound sweet and sound good, and why not? And it's wonderful, but, but then it can turn into poison. Poison is not necessarily entirely poison. Because you use poison in vaccinations, you use poison to vaccinate you, to, to, to heal you. You know, could you be used as medicine, as a cure? So not, nothing is black and white. Not everything is the way it appears to be. Something that appears to be totally off could be something positive. Something that appears to be totally sweet and what could be wrong with it could be deadly. Everything is a mixture. Ever since Adam sinned, everything in this world became totally mixed up and confused. Nothing is simple. You have a person who's very nice, very sweet, and very charming. But it could be all surface, superficial. Inside, the person could be cold, indifferent, selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. And he's just a politician. The moment of truth, he's not there for you. 
he's so far, so gone. <laughs> you can have a person who on the surface is very gruff and very rough and gives you a hard time. But in the moment of truth, the person has a heart of gold. The person will be there for you in the moment of truth. So nothing is the way it appears. The person does a good deed. But he wants his name plastered all over the place. He wants the recognition. So he's doing a good deed. On the other hand, there's a lot of ego involved. You know, so nothing is, nothing is so clear-cut. Nothing is black and white. and Everything is mixed up, confused. The inside is not always like the outside. You think someone is your friend, it turns out they're not. You think someone is your enemy, it turns out they're not. You know, nothing, is, nothing is exactly... The whole world became very confused. And without the Torah, it's very, very difficult. It's almost impossible to navigate because you really don't know. You can fall into a, easily fall into a trap. Something sounds good. Maybe something works in this situation, but it doesn't work in a different situation. You have all different types of ideologies, and every ideology latches on to some truth, some kernel of truth. Because again, everything in God's world has to have some spark, divine spark that sustains it. So communism latched on on one, on, on, on one aspect of a truth, one tiny aspect of a truth, that, you know, there's a communal responsibility and we have to be responsible for each other, we have to care for each other, socialism, communism. But they completely forgot about the other part, <laughs> respect for the individual and private property and capitalism is the exact opposite. They latched onto a truth, an idea that the individual... Every individual is a world, is a universe. Privacy, you have to respect the person's private property, otherwise it's theft. But taken to an extreme, it's completely abrogated. It's communal responsibilities. You know, we're all connected, we're all responsible for each other. So everything, everything in this world, every ideology, everything in this world latched onto one speck of a truth one spark, or one aspect. But it doesn't give you the whole picture. The Torah is the only one that gives us the whole picture. That's why without the Torah, you have people who are conservative. They're always conservative. What's the response to everything? It's like a broken record. A liberal, it's a broken record. Everything in life, liberal, liberal, liberal. And the truth is, reality doesn't work that way. There are moments you have to be liberal. There are moments you have to be ultra-liberal. And there are moments that the same person has to be conservative, and there are moments you have to be ultra-conservative. The same Torah that teaches us compassion tells us if someone comes to kill you, there's no room for pacifism. You have to to defend yourself and take the other person's life and fight ferociously. So the same kind, compassionate person... I mean, who are the warriors that conquered the land of Israel in times of Joshua. These were great rabbis, mystics, scholars, spiritual people. <laughs> and yet they took a knife and they took a sword and they did what they had to do. The same Torah that tells you to be kind and gentle tells you that there's a time you've got to be tough and strong and ferocious. But if a person is just following his nature, human nature, you can't person who's liberal is always liberal. It's a, it's a broken record. It's like, it's a, sometimes it's appropriate and sometimes it's completely inappropriate and dangerous and vice versa. 
It's a person who's always conservative, and that's his nature, and that's, how he, that's his comfort zone, that's how he feels comfortable, and that's his response to everything. Everything is tough, 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 but there's a time when you have to be gentle and loving and generous and kind. How is it possible to be both simultaneously? It's not. But when you have a Torah, when you have the divine, the divine perspective, when you have truth, then the Torah is able to guide you and is able to lead you and you're able to harmonize and you're able to create even opposites to have when it's appropriate under these circumstances this is the right approach under these circumstances this is the right approach so the ability to illuminate this confusion the ability to enter into a world like ours which is so confused and to bring clarity to this world to our situations to our human dilemmas and human real life situations and to give us decisive halachic verdicts. This is the path to go forward. Halacha means to go. Go. Go this way. Go this way. Go that way. Avoid this. Do this. This is poison. This is correct. This is co- These circumstances, this is the way to go. If circumstances change, the halacha changes. It's not that halacha bends. The Torah says sometimes things are not kosher. But if there's a tremendous loss involved, then it's kosher. What happens? The Torah was bribed. Oh, there's a lot of money involved. All of a sudden, the truth changes. I mean, is the Torah being political? No, the Torah is truth. But the circumstances change. Under these circumstances, this is the truth. This is the way to go. If the circumstances change, it can't be a broken record. It's a different reality. A different reality. The truth now expresses itself in the opposite way. But without the Torah, you, all you're left with is the confusion. You're just confused. I don't know what's right, what's wrong. Sometimes blindly I hit it and I get it right. And under some circumstances I succeed. And some, I'm so off. And I'm so... So the Torah, because it's the divine, it's the tree of life, it's divine, it has the ability to illuminate and to clarify for and to tell us in our confusion, in our confused state, in our confused world, and dark and mixed up world, it's able to give us, to illuminate the darkness and give us that clarity with decisiveness. Not if, maybe's, buts. Halacha is very decisive. Torah is very clear. This is the way to go. No if, maybe's, buts. This is correct and this is not correct. This is right and this is wrong. Guilty, not guilty. Obligated, not obligated. Pure, impure. Kosher, not kosher. But the study of Torah, even the laws of Isser and Heter, impurity, impurity, i.e. not the objects, but the laws concerning them, those being the Mishnayot and the Baraitos and the Kamara that address these issues, and the codifiers who explain and clarify the words for practical application, these constitute the body of the oral Torah. This is the Sphira of Malchut in the world of the Sibu, as stated in innumerable places in the sacred, sacred Zohar. It is likewise written at the beginning of the Tikkunim Malchut, literally sovereignty, that is the mouth which we call the oral Torah. And then at Svilut, he and his causations are mohi, literally organs, are one in them, i.e. the infinite ain't light and the vessels, the kalim, 
which emanate from him, and so too his attributes are all one with him in the spirit. That is, the infinite Einsof light unites itself in absolute, in an absolute unity, so that he and his will and wisdom vested in his speech, which is called Malchut, are entirely one. The Torah itself come, comes from the divine, the world of emanation, which is unified with Hashem, with the infinite. So it's, it's purely divine, it's godly. It's not from the tree of life. It's from the tree of, I'm sorry, from the tree of knowledge. It's from the tree of life. It's rooted in Hashem. And it's 100% divine. And pure, divine, and godly. And that is why when a Jew studies Torah properly, not only when he's studying mysticism, or he's studying Tanya, or he's studying Hasidus, or Kabbalah, when a Jew studies Talmud, he can start crying because he's so touched and moved that he's, it's divine. He's studying divine. It's not like, he's not studying math, science, physics. It's not sharpening your brain or stimulating or interesting, exciting. It's something much more profound. You're literally, the words, the divine words touch your soul because it's divine. You're being intimate with the divine. You're touching the divine. These, these, every word, every letter in the Torah contains the infinite. And it touches your soul in the deepest way. But it's the subjects that the Torah deals with. That comes from, they come from the tree of, of knowledge. Because the world that we live in was affected by the tree of knowledge. Everything in the physical world, the ideas of this world, everything in this world is affected by the tree of knowledge. And therefore, this world is so confusing and chaotic and dark and obtuse and confounding. And the Torah is here to illuminate this darkness. But now he's going to say that it's not only the world and the realities which the Torah deal with, the objects which the Torah deals with, the material world that we live in, which comes from the world, the tree of knowledge. But he's saying, as the Torah itself descends from the divine world of emanation, which is unified with Hashem, as the Torah descends into the lower worlds, as the Torah encloses itself, garbs itself, and speaks the language of our world, the Torah also, the garbs in which the Torah clothes itself, act as a concealment and conceal the light. In other words, you have the Torah without a garb. And that's the Kabbalah. The Kabbalah is openly divine. There's no concealment. It talks about the divine, it talks about the infinite, and it talks about the world of emanations, and it talks about the upper worlds, and it talks about the spiritual. So there are no garbs. This is the Torah, even as it's revealed, it's revealed in its pure state. And therefore there's no concealment. The divine light radiates, that's why it's called the Zohar, it light, it radiates, it's illuminated. It's purely illuminated. a story that the 
the Mittler Rebbe, the son of the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, once called one of his Hasidim and said that his sister just told him the Varalea. The Varalea was his sister and the daughter of the Alter Rebbe. And the Alter Rebbe had a, was very partial to her. He loved her. and he used to, She was a very brilliant scholar. And he used to say chasidut, he used to teach chasidut just to her. And uh, she told her brother, the, the, the Mittler Rebbe, that she had a dream. She sees her father, who had already passed away. And she's looking very intently at her father. And the Alter Rebbe, her father says, what are, you, what are you staring at me? What, what are you looking at me? says, your clothes, your garb, your garments are so brilliantly lit up, are so illuminated. It's so brilliant. Alter Rebbe says, yeah, but you want to know what illuminated is? You should see the garments of Rabbi Shimon Bayechoi, the author of the Zohar. You should see his garments. His garments even more illuminated than my garments. Whatever that story means. I mean, Alter Rebbe had to go reach back to find someone whose garments are more illuminated than this. But the Zohar means illumination. Because the Kabbalah, there's no, there's no garments, it's clear. The, the object of discussion is the divine. The whole subject matter is the divine. So there's no concealment. But the rest of the Torah, the Mishnah, the Talmud, the five books of Moses, the 24 books of the prophets, they, it's the same Torah, it's the same infinite light, but the way it's garbed, the way this light comes down and is garbed, and clothes itself, the subject matter, it, the discussions and the subject matter are ready from our world. So you have the, the world of the Talmud, which deals with the intellect, the ideas and the concepts and the deep understanding the underlying rationale behind all the laws and understanding it in great depth this is the world of ideas but, but of our world the human mind the human understanding, human logic trying to understand things logically and deeply and comprehensively then you have the Mishnah the Mishnah deals with the subjects of our world but more the, the halachic the decisions the conclusions, kosher, not kosher, guilty, not guilty, pure, impure, obligated, not obligated. And then you have the five books of Moshe, which deals with the stories and the physical, and the subject matter is the our world, the physical world. So the guard, so the same infinite light encloses itself and expresses itself in different garbs, in thicker and thicker garbs. Now, because the infinite light is now concealed within the garb, therefore this creates tension, this creates confusion, concealment. Because you don't have the clarity that you have in the world of Kabbalah where there is, are no garments. Because the subject matter is human logic and human reasoning and human understanding and and, uh, and the physical world that we live in, its ideas, emotions, and practical 
therefore it creates a tremendous uh, concealment. And that's why there's so many discussions in the Talmud. So many difficulties and discussions and questions and confusion. A lack of clarity. In order to get to a decision, a conclusion, you have to work, sweat. You have to go through tremendous effort, tremendous toil to be able to come to clarity because things are not so clear. So to be able to learn and study through the Torah and and come to a correct conclusion, you really have to work very hard. You know, the Arizal, the greatest Kabbalist that ever lived, the Einstein of Kabbalah, 16th century Tzvat, he would study every subject. He was a genius, besides... uh, great Kabbalists, but like all the great Jewish Kabbalists, they were also Talmudic geniuses. As Rabbi Shemim Bar-Yechoi himself, as we learned earlier. After he left the cave, every question that was asked him, he was able to give 24 answers. 24 different angles or responses or approaches. That's how much developed his logical mind was. He was so profound that he was able to approach it in 25 different ways. 24 different ways. So the Arizal, it says he would bust his head, he would break his head until he would sweat and trying to remember if it was, for every, every question that he had he tried to come up, I don't know, with six answers or six approaches it was eight approaches I can't, can't remember exactly, but it was and he would, wor- he would work so hard until he would sweat because when, once you get into the halacha and you get into the Talmud and you get into the nitty-gritty, there are so many questions. Things are not always clear. Until you come to reach a conclusion, until you're able to reach a conclusion and come with a, a clear decision, someone comes to the rabbi, Rabbi, what do I do? This is what happened. Well, I, there's, I can approach it this way, I can approach it the other way. There's this opinion, there's the other opinion, there's the third opinion, there's the fourth opinion, there's the fifth opinion, there's the sixth opinion. It depends this, it depends that. Could I compare this to this case, or is it different? It's enough to make your head spin. <laughs> so to be able to really bust your head and break your head and really come to a, a, a genuine conclusion, you really have to get to the bottom of the matter. You really have to understand it so clearly, so crystal clear, that you can be able to clarify and to separate and to disentangle and to navigate and to find the right answer because there's a lot of noise but I'm not getting the truth I'm not, you're not hitting it on the nail you know it's like a lot of discussion a lot of words you know but you feel many times you know sometimes you ask your teacher a question and he's giving you a lot of information and he's throwing everything at you including the kitchen sink but you're not satisfied I'm like, sorry you didn't answer my question you're just confusing me even more with all this information and a lot of interesting information, but who said it's relevant information? You're not hitting it on the nail. You're not answering my question. What's the truth? You're not resolving anything. Just a lot of information, a lot of confusion. So to be able to really resolve and to get to the bottom of it, you really have to work very hard. You really have to sweat and you have to bust your head and you have to totally engage and immerse yourself. Total immersion. Your mind is to be totally immersed.
in the subject matter until until your mind is pulled and you, you know you like you feel like you're plotting until you get to the truth. So even though you're dealing with Torah, but even the Torah that you're learning is very confusing. It's very confusing. You're not, you're, you don't get the clarity. It's not simple. It's not clear. What's the answer? What's the truth? I have so many questions and I have so many different approaches and, and what's the right answer? What's the correct answer? What's the true answer? So you're learning Torah. You're studying Torah. And yet the Torah that you're learning seems to be so confusing. And the Talmud, you have pages and pages of questions, and one question, and another question, and another question, pages upon pages, again and again, and trying to clarify it even more, and questions, and back and forth, until the Talmud reaches a conclusion. And sometimes it doesn't reach a conclusion. Sometimes the Talmud says, we're stuck. There's no answer. Until Elijah the prophet comes, till Mashiach comes, we're never going to know. So we're not dealing here with the physical world, we're dealing here with the Torah. And yet, there's so much confusion and so many questions and so many difficulties and problems and obstacles. Why? Didn't we say that the Torah is infinite? The Torah is divine? The Torah is the tree of life? So why is it, why is it, so, problem, why is it so, many, so problematic, so difficult? And the answer is, yes, the Torah is divine and infinite. But when the Torah lowers itself and is garbed, garbs itself into all these garbs in the lower realms, that's what creates all the confusion. And what's our purpose? What's the main purpose of studying Torah? Why did the rabbis, as he said earlier, the author of the Zohar, spend most of his time, the overwhelming majority of his time, was spent not studying the Kabbalah. The author of the Zohar, the ultimate, the Bible of Jewish mysticism, spent the overwhelming majority of his time not studying the Kabbalah. The overwhelming majority of his time spent studying the Mishnah and the Talmud. Him and his son, Rabbi Lazar, who some say were even sharper than him. And there isn't a chapter in the Talmud in which Rabbi Shemba is not mentioned. He doesn't have something to say. He has something to say about every part of the Torah. And he's a major pillar of the whole mission of the whole oral Torah. He was one of the teachers of uh, Rebbe, the author of the mission. So why? Why spend so much time studying the revealed part of the Torah, the Talmud and the, the Jewish law, shouldn't he spend overwhelming majority of his time studying the Kabbalah? It's interesting, the, the Vilna Goyen students testified that the Vilna Goyen spent most of his time studying Kabbalah. He spent more time studying Kabbalah than he did studying the Talmud and the Pasuk. I don't know if the Alter Rebbe spent most of his time studying Kabbalah. Alter Rebbe learned like 18 hours a day. It's very possible that he spent the majority of his time studying the revealed part of the Torah. We know the Rebbe spent at least 12 hours a day studying. Every single day. At least. 
we don't know if he spent most of his time studying Hasidut and Kabbalah or most of his time he spent studying the revealed part of it. So why is it if Kabbalah is from the tree of life and the revealed part of the Torah, the Talmud, and the code of Jewish law is associated with the the tree of knowledge. Not God forbid that the Torah is the tree of knowledge. Torah is every word and letter in the Torah is the tree of life. But it's the tree of life, the way it's been garbed in the lower worlds, in the worlds that are disconnected, in the world of human logic, in the world of human emotions, in the world of the practical human world. And it's when the Torah encloses itself in these garbs, the Torah becomes hidden and confused and confounded and puzzling and, and we face so many obstacles. And that's the reason why we have to spend so much time studying Torah. Because the main purpose of studying Torah is to clarify, to sift, to bring that clarity, to be able to work through all those difficulties and all those concealments and all the darkness and all the confusion to be able to come to a conclusion a clear conclusion to reach that level of clarity and when we study Torah and we clarify it within the Torah we're able to clarify what's right and what's wrong and what's truth and what's the right approach we bring clarity to the world By clarifying within the Torah, that's how we bring clarity to the world. We actually clarify the world. The Torah is so powerful that when we bring clarity within the Torah, we're able to overcome the darkness that conceals on the Torah. And the Torah is able, we're able to illuminate the Torah. Thereby, we're able to illuminate the world to clarify the world and to illuminate the world. And that's the purpose why the rabbis spent most of their time studying, even the greatest Kabbalists spent most of their time studying Talmud. The purpose of studying the, the revealed part of the Torah and the Talmud and the law is in order to clarify and to bring clarity into the world, which is the whole mission and the whole purpose of the Torah after the sin and after the whole world became confused and confounded as a result of the tree of knowledge our main mission is to sift through and to separate and to clarify and the way we begin is by bringing clarity to the Torah being able to overcome all these questions and overcome all these difficulties and overcome all these obstacles and and to get to the core, the essence to get to the truth and to clarify and to come to a conclusion, a genuine conclusion, a halachic conclusion, a correct conclusion, and you're able to answer all these questions, you're able to overcome all these questions, thereby you break the klipa, you shatter the concealment, and you reveal Hashem. And that's why the Arizal would sweat and toil, he would learn until literally he would break his head, until literally he would start sweating. He worked so hard till literally he physically started sweating because his brain was working so hard. Because when he sweated and he was able to break 
the klipa, able to break the shell and break the concealment and bring light and illuminate and answer all the questions and answer the confusions and answer the obstacles. That's how he brought clarity to the world. And once he brought clarity to the world, then the whole world was a different place. You know, they tell a beautiful story, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Shulchan Baruch, the code of Jewish law. The entire Jewish people follow Rabbi Yosef Karo. So one time, he was studying some very, very difficult part in the Talmud. And he was working on it for a few days. He just couldn't, he couldn't wrap his head around it. He just couldn't, understand, he just couldn't get any clarity. Finally, after working so hard, finally had his breakthrough. And now it all cleared up. Like suddenly all his questions cleared up and everything became so crystal clear. And now he went back to the Talmud. Everything made sense. It was so beautiful. He was so excited until he walked into the synagogue. And he saw a regular run-of-the-mill scholar, nothing special, learning the same passage in the Talmud for the first time. And he learned it. He got it right the first time. He learned it. He understood it. No problems. No questions. No issues. No. He felt terrible. He is the greatest Torah scholar in his generation. He is the Torah giant of all generations and the leader of his generation. And he couldn't understand it. And he had to break his head and it took him a few, a three days till he figured it out. He busted his head until Hashem helped him and he finally, finally put all the pieces together and now it all made sense to him. This simple, average, run-of-the-mill scholar, first time, he gets it right the first time? He had a, I mean, he had a total crisis of confidence. What's going on here? It makes no sense. And then they explained it to him from heaven. You don't understand. When you studied this Talmud, you didn't understand it. No one could understand it because it was so confused and confounded, and they were like it was an obstacle course. How? Who can get by this? Who can get through this? Who can find the truth? But because you busted through, and you worked it through, you paved the path, you opened the road, you paved the highway. After you broke through, now. Now it's simple, it's easy, it's out there. You brought it to the world, you brought it down to the world. Now even an average run-of-the-mill scholar, he'll get it right the first time, it's there. You've already done the hard work, you've done it already, you've clarified it. Now we can move on to other things. This has been already done. So when the rabbis worked so hard and studied Torah, which engaged their minds, their brilliant minds, engaged them totally and fully, and they really busted their heads and uh, they easily used to sweat, work so hard until he sweated. And Rabbi Shem Ba'yichai would learn until he came up with 24 answers to every question. Then, that clarity that they brought to the Torah, they were able to overcome the garbs and overcome the concealment and overcome the shells, the klipa and the, neg- the negativity and the f- negative forces that try to cover up and conceal and confuse and confound that the Torah becomes unclear and they were able to clarify and break through all the obstacles so the light should be able to shine clearly this has a tremendous effect on the world now the whole world becomes 
a much clearer place, illuminated place, a better place. And this is our whole purpose in life, to bring clarity and to separate the good from the evil, to sift through, discard the garbage from the good. That's, that's what we do in life. You know, when you eat food, very little of that food stays within you. You know that. <laughs> very little, very little of the food. Only the part that becomes part of your blood. The rest turns into waste. is discarded. And the body's job is to clarify all the nutrients, all the healthy parts, all the things that the body can use for life, for health. It extracts it from all the food that we eat. It extracts it. And everything else it sends out. But when you look at the food, you, <laughs> you, everything is all mixed together. You don't know what's, uh, where the nutrients are, or what's good, or what's not good, or what's good for you. Today the body is working overtime because the food that we eat, all this processed food, all this garbage... <laughs> The body is working very hard to find anything good in there. Anything that's, that's nutritious and that's healthy and that's wholesome. Everything is so poisoned and processed and, and, and artificial and chemicalized and garbage. And I wonder why everyone is so sick. But, the, um, but, but that's, that's life. That's the whole process of life. Our job in life is to clarify and to separate. So God gives us a world. He creates the world and because of Adam's sin. When God created the world, there was clarity. There was no issues. Clarity. It was like the manna from heaven. The manna, which was divine food, that was the complaint of the Jews. They never went to the bathroom. There was never any waste. It was 100% good. So when God created the world, there was clarity. There was, no, there was complete separation. There was no mixture. It was a garden of Eden. And then as a result of the sin, everything became mixed up. Everything became confused. And our job is non-stop. Just like the body, non-stop. All the food that we eat, we have to constantly clarify and separate and sift through what's discarded, what's good, what can we take, and to separate the two. But when you look at the food, I don't see, I can't tell which part of it is, is nutrition and which part of it is good and which part of it is useless and garbage and empty and nothing. And that's the, our mission in life, our main mission in life ever since. The Jewish people's mission is to clarify, to go back to the Garden of Eden by separating and sifting and clarifying and overcoming the, the concealment and the darkness and extracting all the good and separating the good from the, from the evil. And the way the rabbis did it was by studying Torah. That's why their whole life was engaged in studying Torah, learning 18 hours a day, like the Rebbe learned 18 hours a day and learning with every fiber of his being and every bone in his body and engaging his incredible mind and totally, fully engaging. And he was the one who wrote the Code of Jewish Law, gave us the clarity. And as the, the Raga Travagoyen, one of the greatest geniuses that lived in the last few hundred years, said that for the Alter Rebbe to write his ideas in the bottom of this Code of Jewish Law, he has like essays explaining like a he says the ideas the original ideas that Al-Tarebi writes there his veins in his head had to be made from, from, from iron I mean he had to have such powerful such a powerful mind and, and his concentration his focus to come up with such brilliant original 
breathtaking, mind-boggling understanding and ideas and clarification in such difficult discussions. Because you see all the other great rabbis, and they were they were they couldn't find their way. They were like this this way, the other way, and Al Rebbe just clarified it with such illumination. I mean, the amount of intense focus that was necessary. So by bringing clarity in the, within Torah, in the code of Jewish law, and the Talmud, they brought clarity to the world. They overcame the Kalipa, they overcame the negative forces in the world, and the forces of darkness that cl- be cloud and confuse and confound. And, and they were able to sift and separate. And that's the power of the Torah. That the Torah is able to deal with our world and not only not be affected by the negativity of this world and the darkness and the confusion and operate only on a remote level. I can only deal with Kabbalah. I can only deal with angels and with the higher worlds and the divine it's pristine, it's divine, it's infinite, it's godly, it's beautiful. But this world of this nitty-gritty, to get into the nitty-gritty of this physical, dark, coarse, crass, confusing, confounding world and human personalities and to deal guilty, not guilty, and to get into all the, the arguments between the tenant and the landlord and, and, two, and two Jews fighting with each other over money and who's right and who's wrong and who's honest and who's dishonest. To take such a pristine Torah and to be able to engage in the nitty-gritty of this physical world and to bring illumination and give us clarity and guidance, this is the ultimate expression of the infinity and the divinity of the Torah. That it's so divine and so infinite and so pure that it's even able to enter into an impure world, into such a dark confusing world and bring clarity and teach us show us the right path right from wrong so this was the main engagement of the rabbis throughout all the generations by studying Torah this is fulfilling our divine mission through the Torah to address the confusion of the tree of knowledge and to overcome that confusion through tremendous effort and by studying the Talmud and studying the law and uh, bringing Hashem into this world. So that's basically what we're going to be uh, reading now. As to the statement of Rabbi Isaac Luria of blessed memory, that the Mishnayot relate to the Sefirah of Malchut in the world of Yetzirah, whereas we have just quoted the Zohar to the effect that the Mishnayot relate to the Sefirah of Malchut in the world of Atsilut. He referred to the garment of Malchut of Yetzirah, in which Malchut of Atsilut is vested. Only after Malchut of Atsilut descends to the world of Yetzirah and is vested there, can it be said that Mishnayot relates to the Yetzirah. And Malchut of Yetzirah is referred to as a handmaiden, Shifa, relative to Malchut of Atzilut, which is vested in it. He asked the question earlier, Rabbi Shimon Bar-Yechai is of the opinion that in order to read the Shema, one who studies Torah all day does not have to 
whose main occupation is studying Torah. We don't have such an individual today. But in the times of the Talmud, someone like a Shimon Bayechai himself, that was his business. That's what he did 24-7. He lived Torah, he breathed Torah, he ate Torah, slept Torah, drank Torah. That was his whole being, his whole occupation was Torah study. He did not have to stop to pray. His Torah study was more important. But he would have to stop to read the Shema. However, Abshim Ben-Yechoi holds that you only interrupt the reading of the Shema if he's, study, if he's studying Scripture, if he's studying the five books of Moses. But if he's studying Mishnah, you don't even interrupt to read the Shema. It's more important to continue studying the Mishnah than to read the Shema. So it would seem from that that Mishnah is loftier than Scripture. But the question is that Rabbi Shimon Bayechoi himself in the Zohar writes many places that scripture is like the king, the queen, and the Mishnah is the handmaid. So the five books of Moses are holier than the Mishnah. The primary. Which do you place on top of which? If you have a Mishnah, you have a Chumash. Five books of Moshe. What goes on top of which? The Chumash goes on top. On top of everything. It's the holiest. It's the five books of Moshe, for crying out loud. That's expressed in Halach. Of course, it goes on top of everything. As the Zohar itself writes. This is the, uh, the uh, king, and, and, and this is just a handmaid. And yet, he writes, that... He said he believes, he holds that if someone is in the middle of reading, the, if someone if it reaches the time of Shema, if someone is reading the scripture, you have to stop and read the Shema. But if you're learning the Mishnah, you don't stop. So it would seem that Mishnah is greater than the five books of Moshe. So how do you reconcile it to? And the answer is, of course, when you're talking about the essence, the five books of Moshe are holier, the holiest five books of Moshe. That's the king and the Mishnah, the oral Torah is the handmaid. But when you talk about the projection, the way the Torah is projected, the way the Torah is garbed, the way the Torah is presented, in its garb, the Mishnah is garbed in the level of Yitzirah, the world of Yitzirah, which is a higher world while the five books of Moshe are garbed in the world of action. Because the five books of Moshe is in the story form. It tells us the story, it tells us what happens in the physical world with people. And so therefore, it's, it's projected. And it's expressed, the garb deals with the physical world. Versus the Mishnah, its garb is on a higher level. The garb deals with kosher, not kosher, guilty, not guilty, obligated, not obligated, pure, impure. So the whole, the garb is a much more, uh, much more refined. It doesn't, it doesn't reach all the way to the physical, the physical world. It's more like in the emotional level. Emotions, you know, you like, you don't like, it's guilty, not guilty. And judgments, you know, right, wrong which is more an emotional expression. And then you have the Talmud, which is a much more subtle garb, because the Talmud is the pure logic and the pure comprehension and the pure depth and understanding and the analogy and understanding the connections. 
So this is the world of ideas, which is beyond the world of emotions. That, that's the world of Berea. So the garment is projected on a high level. That's why, and the world of Kabbalah, there's no garb. It's purely the, the world of divine. That's why it's, a, it's like a triangle. As you get higher and higher, it gets thinner and thinner. <laughs> Those who can study the Kabbalah, the true masters of the Kabbalah, the very few, the very few on top. <laughs> Like someone says, he went to the Garden of Eden. He was he, after 120 years. He said he goes to the Garden of Eden. <laughs> they're shocked. They're serving him some tuna salad. <laughs> so I'm in the Garden of Eden. I, I expected you know five course dinner, you know, French cuisine. Well, what do you give me? He said, "Listen, doesn't pay to cook for one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's very thin, very thin on the top." <laughs> So the triangle, you get to the top, Kabbalah, ooh, the world, the world of the divine emanation, the world of Atzillas. Only the loftiest souls are the true masters of Kabbalah. They know what they're talking about. The world of the Talmud is also, it's a closed club. It's a very small club. The true masters of the Talmud who are fluent in the Talmud inside out, who understand it in depth. Maimonides already wrote 850 years ago, he says the Talmud is so deep. And very few people understand it. <laughs> he says, it's so cryptic and deep, and so, so deep, he says. That, you know, even in his times, he knows, commented how so profound it is that it's beyond the ken of his day, the scholars of his day and age. Imagine the scholars of our day and age. Like a joke. So, and then the Mishnah, the Mishnah has a little of a bigger club. Mishnah is already, you can learn, you can understand. It's, you know, it's more the facts, the rules, the decisions. Kosher, not kosher, guilty, not guilty, obligated, not obligated, pure impure. But the mikra, the five books of Moshe, that's for everyone. Everyone reads the five books of Moshe. That's the stories of the Torah. Everyone can understand that. Stories. So when you're discussing the garbs, the projection of the Torah, the mission is greater. That's what he says. If you're studying just this simple five books of Moshe, Rabbi Shemmei says you should interrupt to read the Shema. But if you're studying... The Mishnah, don't interrupt, that's more important even than reading the Shema. But we're talking about the essence. The essence, the five books of Moshe, that's the king. That's the five books of Moshe. It's directly from Hashem. It's, it's the infinite. It's the holiest, the Torah. The oral Torah is like the handmaid. It's auxiliary to the written Torah. So it all depends what, what we're discussing. And that's what he's explaining here, by contrast. By contrast, Malchut of Beria, which is a lower world, is referred to as a May Ama, denoting a level superior to the level of Shifta. The Mishnah is the handmaiden. The, uh, the Bria, which is the Talmud, is the maid. It's a, it's a higher level, more lofty level. Proof of this that there is a significant difference between the way something exists in its essential state, Be'etzem, and the way it exists as it is vested, Be'et Labshut, in a lower level, may be gained from the statement of Rabbi Isaac Luria of blessed memory, that scripture, i.e., the written scripture, is in Asiyah, even though it is explicit in innumerable places in the Zohar, in the writings of Rabbi Isaac Luria, 
blessed memory that it is the Sefirah of Tiferet, which is the Zeir Amtin of Asilut. As such, it is even higher than Malchut of Asilut. How then can it be said that scripture is an Asiyah? Rather, this means that it vests itself in Asiyah. Thus, it is taught explicitly in Sefer HaKavanot that scripture, Mishnah, Talmud, and Kabbalah are all in Atzilut, except that scripture vests itself as far down as Asiyah. The written Torah hinges on its letters, which are inscribed with tangible ink on tangible parchment, and hence related to Asiyah, the world of action. So by definition, the written Torah means it's written. It has to come down, be written with ink on a parchment. And the whole Torah it deals with stories, with events, with people. It, it, the, the subject matter is of the physical, of this world. That's by its definition. So it's projected. In fact, it's projected all the way into the physical. All the way down to the physical. But the truth is, only something that's great has the ability to project itself lower. Why is it that with our eyes, seeing is the, is the highest, the highest sense. And what do we see the physical? It's precisely because seeing is so high and so lofty that it has the power to project itself down to the physical. Hearing, hearing is only spiritual. I can only hear sound waves, which I can't see a sound wave. It's something a little more subtle. Hearing, I can only pick up something subtle. I can't pick up, I can't pick up something physical with my hearing. Only sound waves, which is subtle, a little more spiritual. But eyesight, I can see something physical. Because eyesight is much deeper than hearing. When you see something, you're so certain of it. Nothing could shake you up of your confidence. If I see that the sun is shining, even if ten Einsteins will prove to me and stand and prove to me that now it's impossible for the sun to shine, I won't waver. Because what I see, it's so, so clear and so certain. When you see something, it's an experience. You experience it. You're standing at the Niagara Falls. You're seeing and experiencing something, uh, one of the world wonders. It, it's an experience. You could have known about it. You could have studied about it. I can go to school and study about a certain country, but you can't compare when you actually go there and you see it and you experience it. So seeing is much more profound, and that's why it reaches so far, even something physical and tangible. Versus hearing, its reach is limited. It could only, I could only pick up Sound waves, something subtle. I can't pick up something. It doesn't reach so far. So the reason why the Torah is able to project itself and is able to reach so far into the written, into the ink, into the parchment, into the physical is precisely because it's the greatest, it's the highest, it's the deepest. It's like the ability to explain something so simple. Only the true master, only the deepest mind, the deepest intellect, the most powerful intellect, could explain it in the simplest language. Anyone who doesn't have such a powerful intellect doesn't have the ability to explain it simply. Everything has to be highfalutin and abstract and confusing and confounding and you know, high vocabulary that nobody understands, first, at least of all he himself. But the, the, but the true genius, Einstein could talk to a five-year-old. The professor in Columbia... He writes books and no one understands what he's talking about. 
the Baal Shem Tev, the master, he was able to take the esoteric concepts of Kabbalah that were hidden for thousands of years and explain it to a simple person. Bring it down on the level of a simple person to communicate it to a simple level. Rashi, the rabbi of all the Jewish people, Rabbi Shai Yisrael, he was able to take the deepest and explain it to a five-year-old child. His grandson said, Rabbi Inatam, he says, listen, my grandfather's commentary in the Talmud, that I can do. His commentary on the Chumash, I can never do it in a million years. That's a true genius. To take the depth and the deepest and to explain it clearly, simply, this is astounding. This, only the true master, the rabbi, the rabbi of all the Jewish people, only he has the power. To be simple is not so simple. So the fact that the five books of Moshe are so simple, it's precisely because it's the deepest and it's the holiest. And that's why everyone learns Torah, everyone looks, learns the five books of Moses, and nobody understands a word. <laughs> because it's so deep and it's so profound. And it's so simple. But it's not simple at all. So the fact that it comes down, it's projected and it's vested in this garment in the physical world is precisely because it's the deepest. Mishnah, it can come down to the... To, it can't come down. Its reach is limited. It can't come down to the level of the five-year-old. It could only reach the level of the, of the, of the ten-year-old. Talmud is even more esoteric. It reaches even more limited, as the mission says. It only, only reach the 15-year-old. It can't reach the 10-year-old or the 5-year-old. Kabbalah is even more limited. It can only reach very, very thin on the top. So th- there's a huge difference in, we're talking about the essence, or you're talking about the projection. And Mishnah vests itself only as far down as Yetzirah. The Mishnah consists mainly of laws, such as those determining ritual validity or invalidity. These two states ultimately derive from the corresponding Midot of Chesed and Geburah, the divine emotive attributes of benevolence and severity. Hence, these laws are vested in the world of Yetzirah. For the six emotive Sephirot nest in Yetzirah. Because all of these rules and laws are based on either kosher or not kosher, guilty, not guilty, correct or not correct, valid or invalid. In other words, if, is it something that we can draw close to holiness, embrace, love, and embrace, or is it something we have to reject? It's not kosher. It's not valid. We can't elevate it. We have to discard it. So it's a judgment. Yes or no? It's binary. Yes or no? Kosher, not kosher. Embrace, reject. So it's all emotions. The divine emotion. The expression of the divine emotion. Am I going to embrace it? Hug it and bring it into the, into the holy domain? Or am I going to reject it? The Talmud is vested as far down as Beriah. Talmud elucidates the laws. It thus relates to Berea, the world of comprehension, which is illumined by Bina, understanding for the supernal mother, i.e. Bina, nests in the world of the throne, i.e. in Berea. Now when Malchot of Hetzulut is vested in Elitat, Nogah, in order to extract and refine the sparks that fell with the sin of Adam, 
as well as the 288 sparks that fell with the breaking of the vessels. The concept of Shivriyat HaKilim, the primordial breaking of the vessels and the elevation of the 288 sparks of holiness hidden in the material world is explained at length elsewhere in the literature of Fisudu. Malkut of Atsulot, too, is then referred to as the tree of knowledge of good and evil relative to Zayir Apen of Atsulot, which does not descend there and which is referred to as the tree of life. And the investor of the Sefera of Malkut and and the Kabbalistic principle of the exile of the Shekhinah, whereby man rules over man to his determined. In Epistle 25 above, the Altar Rebbe quotes the exposition of the verse in Sefer HaGilim. During the time of exile, the evil man of Kalipa rules over the sacred man, i.e. the holy side of the universe. At this time, the divine presence is in a state of exile within the universe. However, this temporary dominion of evil is to his ultimate determinant, for its underlying intent is that the sparks of holiness that are embedded within evil be extracted and elevated. The simple meaning is that the evil man rules over the sacred man in the times of exile. But the uh, Kabbalah explains that, yes, evil rules over the good, but it's actually to its own detriment. Because as a result, the, once the evil is exposed, it's actually destroyed. It's like a bloodsucker. You know, when the blood, when the blood sucker sucks your blood, it dies. Once it's filled, it's satiated, it actually dies. Evil is only in its promise, you know, its, its promise, its potential. It looks exciting, it sounds exciting, until you actually do it. <laughs> Once you do it, the excitement is long gone, there's nothing there. It's a complete disappointment, completely bankrupt, dead end, and it's the end. You know, millions of people believed in communism, they got so excited about it, until it was realized. Once it was realized, it just crashed and burned to a dead end. It's to its own detriment. When evil is realized, it's over. It's finished. Evil is only in the promise. It can suck the blood, suck the life out of the good. But once evil is realized, it's dead. It's over. It's finished. All societies that fought against the family, the nucleus of, of life, of existence, of the, the divine family, the divine nuclear, nuclear atom of life, once they realized their, uh, they, they self-destructed. It was the end of Rome and the end of Greece. It was finished, finished. They self-destructed. You know, evil only works in its delusional promise and its Madison Avenue hype and its, 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 its stars, you know, in Hollywood... Uh, Disney World, spiritual Disney World type existence that no bearing, no bearing with reality. You know, lust, a cheap imitation, sounds good. It doesn't work. It's not love. Fame, a cheap imitation. It crashes and burns. It's not the real thing. It's not respect. 
you know, cravings, the cheap imitation versus real hunger, healthy hunger. Hunger for knowledge, hunger for life, real hunger for, for real food versus cravings for junk food, junk lifestyle. Uh, fun, cheap imitation versus the real deal, joy, inner joy. So klipa, it's a shell, it's a monkey, it's just a copycatter, it's just, uh, there's nothing there. It's blood, it sucks off the blood, it, it, it has to be nourished. That's why it has to have, it has to nourish off holiness. Why is it so important for them? They ha- we have to recognize that it's called a marriage. We want you to call it something sacred. Because it's like a bloodsucker. It knows there's nothing there. It knows it's, it's completely empty. The antithesis of everything that's godly and holy and truth and genuine. So it needs that, that it's like a bloodsucker. I need, I need you to call it something sacred and divine. But like everything else, when evil gets its way, it crashes and burns. It self-destructs. They just expose themselves, what they are, completely bankrupt. There's nothing there. It's a bubble. That's all it is, is a bubble. And like all bubbles, the more it's realized, the bubble just stretches <laughs> until it pops. Hitler's thousand-year Reich lasted too long. Lasted 13 years. Like all bubbles. Communism. Like all bubbles. Collapsed. Puff. Like a gun as if it never happened. Like all bubbles, there's no reality to it. So it's to their own detriment. When evil vanquishes and conquers good, the Kabbalah says, it's l'raloi, it's, it's to his own detriment. <laughs> They're not helping themselves. They think they won. They lost. And that's the purpose. Why does God allow evil to vanquish it's to their own purpose. That, that's what the Kabbalah explains, the deeper, the deeper meaning of the word. So he says that when the level of Atzillus, the Torah, the way it's in the, in the divine world of Atzillus, when it encloses itself and is garbed and project, is projected into this world that's, be, that's lower than Atzillus, that's when the Shechina, the Shechina, God's presence is in exile. Because the Shechina is here, but it's in prison. It's locked up. It's concealed. It's hidden. Covered up. And what's our mission? That's what he's going to explain. The question he asked earlier, how can he say that, that today even the Torah scholars receive their sustenance from the, the earthy ones, from the, the non-Torah scholars? He says, why? In the times of the Talmud, there were many rabbis who were extremely rich, wealthy, independent. They weren't dependent on anyone else. So why they were not dependent on the on the earthly ones? He says, no. What he means to say is that in today's day and age, before Mashiach comes, when evil prevails and there's such darkness and concealment and confusion and cover up, so the main occupation of the rabbis with their Torah study, the purpose of their Torah study was to overcome the negativity, to overcome the darkness, to overcome the concealment and the confusion. By them studying Torah so hard, with every fiber of their being and using every cell in their brain, studying Torah so hard, 
being fully engaged in the Torah study and breaking their heads and busting their heads and, and sweating it out and, and trying to come to a clarity within the Torah itself to the right halacha, what's the correct halacha, and to clarify the issues and to clarify the subject matter within the Torah, they were sifting through and clarifying and overcoming the evil and negativity in the world, the power of their Torah study. So that was the main purpose of the Torah study, which explains why their main Torah study was the Talmud, the revealed part of the Torah. But when Mashiach will come, however, Maimonides says it won't be that way. Mashiach will come, our entire Torah study will be the secrets of the Torah, the mystical. That will be, Maimonides says clearly, Mashiach will come, the engagement of the world will be exclusively, for Jew as well as non-Jew, will be exclusively the knowledge of a God, the, the knowledge, the ultimate knowledge, the knowledge of God, exclusive. So our whole occupation, our whole engagement, won't be in the Talmud, and the external part of the Torah, but our whole occupation will be with the esoteric. Because Mashiach will come, you won't need, you won't have to spend all your energy and all your effort studying Torah and clarifying because we'll have clarity. Mashiach will come, the veil will lift and godliness will be revealed and the world will once again become a Garden of Eden. We're going to go back to the Garden of Eden and even great, higher than we were at that time. And um, the world will never revert back to exile. And then you won't need to spend all that effort and energy and sweat to clarify, to separate. There won't be any darkness. There won't be any concealment. There'll be tremendous clarity. And then the main occupation of the studying of Torah will be Torah for its own sake. Torah, the mystical parts of the Torah, the secrets of the Torah. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.